Welcome to the Michigan Opportunity, an economic development podcast featuring candid conversations with business leaders across Michigan. You'll hear firsthand accounts from Michigan business leaders and innovators about how the state is driving job growth and business investment, supporting a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem, building vibrant communities, and helping to attract and retain one of the most diverse and significant workforces in the nation. Hello, I'm your host, Ed Clementi, and uh, it's a pleasure to have Thomas Glassmacher. He is the FRIB Laboratory Director, which means Facility for Rare Isotope Beams at Michigan State University. And welcome to the show, Thomas. Well, I'm glad to be here. And just so you know, any of you people look up his background, he said I can call him Thomas. I know he has a doctorate, but uh, I think he's much more comfortable with Thomas, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... um I don't know. We might have met in the past, (laughs) but I know that way back when I was in the legislature, one of the last things we kind of worked on was with MSU. We were trying to get you funding through the state appropriations, and I did a committee hearing there. And it was so long ago, I don't think you would remember it, but I know you were working there at the time. So I'm just so excited about this whole project even though it's beyond my mental capacity to know everything that's going on there. We do appreciate everything you've been doing and what Michigan State's been doing. And what do you kind of tell people, Thomas, when they first meet them at a party and they don't know anything you do? Well, it's, I mean, the facility for rare isotope beams, it's really a Team Michigan project, Team MSU and Team Michigan. It's a Department of Energy-funded user facility where scientists from all over the country, all over the world, come to get science opportunities that don't exist elsewhere. And what we do, we make rare isotopes. Those are atomic nuclei that once existed on Earth. They have long since decayed, and we make them available for study. And to enable scientists to make discoveries with these rare isotopes, we make them in a big linear accelerator. We built the world's most powerful heavy iron linear accelerator here in mid-Michigan. And it's been going on for 14 years. And um, we started in 2008. And in May 2022, um, President Stanley, the president of MSU, and the Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, former governor, they together cut the ribbon. It's a joint activity between the energy department at MSU, but it couldn't have happened without the support we received through multiple administrations and, you know, over a decade and a half from the state of Michigan. So I appreciate you being there in the beginning, Ed, and those who came after you who have since supported us. Well, it's kind of like a thesis. Uh, You lay the foundation, but the next person probably carries the torch after you pass on. And, uh, a lot of people, obviously, there's there's a lot of probably parents involved in making this project go. And I know that, uh, it, you know, from being in the legislature, it's really never you that does everything. Um, but I also know that, um, why don't you, you just touched on it a little bit, but when you say people come here, you got some really big numbers of people that do come there, I don't think people realize, and as a former alumni of Michigan State and someone who remembered when Cyclotron was on the campus and we they said, you know, people scientists were coming for that. But what you're doing is way like more advanced even, isn't it? 
Yeah, the AFRIP really builds on the tradition and history and accomplishments of the MSU Cyclotron Lab that in the 80s became the National Superconducting Cyclotron Lab. And and I joined MSU as a postdoc at the Cyclotron Lab, or the NSCL. The AFRIP accelerator is a thousand times more powerful than the cyclotrons. And after, you know, 50 years of science, the cyclotrons shut down in the, um, last fall, and we're going to have a celebration of the cyclotron science accomplishments um, here in August of 22. Now, for AFRIP, um, 1,600 users from mainly from the U.S., but some from abroad have registered to do experiments here. They represent 124 universities, um, 13 national labs, U.S. national labs, and these users come from 52 countries. So those are nuclear scientists who want to do basic science here. That's the kind of science that industry doesn't fund, but that eventually can lead to economic opportunity. And part of the, while EFRIP is funded to be a basic science machine, you know, we, we will afford economic opportunity for state of Michigan through spin-offs and discoveries and IP that gets generated that then, um, you know, can, can elevate the state further because, you know, we feel strongly, I mean, the state gave us this opportunity, Michigan State gave us this opportunity. And so you have assets, you leverage these assets into more assets. That's the story of NSCL being leveraged into AFRIP and something will, will build on the shoulders of AFRIP. Yeah, and, and you actually stimulated a little bit of a Another point, one of our previous guests was the director of the Midwest Patent Office, which is, uh, if anyone wants to listen to that episode, it was way back. But, um, he, you know, Michigan is such an innovative state and we have so many patent lawyers. So when you mention intellectual property, you, you know, I think you and I in our discussion ahead of time, was that uh, you use a lot of Michigan innovation too in manufacturing opportunities for the creation of the the EFRIB, right? Yeah, Michigan is so over the last fifteen years we spend a billion and a half, and we spend seventy five percent of that in Michigan and ninety four percent in the nation. But Michigan is ideal to build this one-of-a-kind facility. So it's one-of-a-kind. There is not a blueprint. We have to design it, and then we have to find suppliers who can build us the parts. And sometimes I think of ourselves as a system integrator for one-of-a-kind systems. So the best suppliers we have are companies, 50 to 150 people, often they're family-owned, quite often actually second and third generation. And we can work with them well because the volume we buy appeals to them. We can be meaningful business for them. They put up with us, you know, as scientists. Sometimes we change our minds and stuff. So it's a good size and it's a good partnership. We can um, work with them. They work with us. And this is why Michigan was really good to build effort because there is a lot of supply base available. And the Midwest in general, it's not all Michigan, but we have, you know, we have suppliers from all over the state. But like I mentioned, three quarters of the things we um, but we spent three quarters of the money in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, you know, just from all my years, of even running a chamber of commerce, that it's amazing how many small businesses um, 
actually diversify what they do and they can transpose it. I mean, you yeah. can go all the way back, you know, when Michigan's always managed to switch to war times to peace times, you know, it's, but it's always the people that sort of, I'm just finishing a book on Henry Ford, but like, you know, he was, he was electrical kind of guy. And then he was this and that. And I think a lot of people are like that in Michigan. And I think we should also mention one other thing too, is you mainly do basic research versus applied. Can you just give a quick definition for folks what uh, the difference is between the two? Yeah, we, we do basic research. We're funded by the U.S. Department of Energy of Office of Science, the largest funder of the physical sciences in the nation for basic research. We cannot, we're not allowed to compete with industry. We don't want to compete with industry, but we do the kind of research that in 20, 30, 40 years pays back. And Actually, we enable scientists to do this. You know, we really enable all the people who come here do the discoveries, and they can then translate into economic opportunities through then becoming applied research or they create IP. Somebody licenses it, and um, so so we do the kind of things that are too risky. Or there is no ROI yet um, for industry, but eventually there may be. And so that's what we enable them to do here. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny because the return on investment is always a challenging thing for folks. But the reality is, if you look at almost all of history and innovation and invention, really only like maybe 5% really ever sort of comes to market. But if you didn't have all that other 95%, you wouldn't be able to get to the 5%. I completely agree. And you yeah. don't know upfront what the 5% is. You don't. And, 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 you know, when it's like sort of, it's a mix of both good deductive and inductive reasoning, right? Because some stuff you have to eliminate, other stuff you have to go where you don't have really that many clues if that's the right path, right? No, I agree. You don't know what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. It's an idea. You learn more about it and pretty soon you figure out that one was a bad idea. But some other things um, stick around longer and they go in... In cycles, I mean, the, the, the story of the MSU lab is that MSU president Hannah hired somebody from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Henry Blosser, to build a cyclotron. He did. Then he built a, a, you know, a superconducting magnet because superconducting wire came out. He put radio frequency in. And then we had the world's first superconducting cyclotron, then the largest superconducting cyclotron. Then we used that to do heavy iron science, which hadn't been done with superconducting cyclotrons. We used that to make the first radioactive beams here in, uh, in Michigan. And we used that to become leaders in the science that was needed for AFRIP. And we used the leadership in science to convince the federal government that they should invest 700 million here. So this is how things in a serendipitous manner build on top of each other. And what I'm not talking about is the um, lines of inquiry not pursued. It's not that we jumped from cyclotrons to EFRIP. There were other things in between we didn't do because we, we went down the path a little bit, turned out to be a bad idea. And when you look back, it looks so well thought out. In the moment, <laughs> I, I came here in 92. I remember we had meetings and, you know, it was a little bit depressing because that wasn't working and that wasn't working. So you got to stick with it and judge which path in the road to take. Well, I mean, you know, if anyone studies any history, you know, things like the Renaissance and the Scottish Enlightenment and all these things, they all happened not because anyone thought about doing it. 
It's just sort of like you said, serendipitous, but serendipity happens because there's a lot of sort of spontaneous combustion going on among people who just sort of, you know, you have like an ecosystem that allowed you to do the FRIP. Yeah, that's Had you right. not had that ecosystem, it probably wouldn't have turned out the way it did. It might've gone a different way or whatever. But, no, uh, you're right. You need a bunch of smart people. You need opportunity. And then when you combine the two, new things can happen. I should also let our listeners know that you have a slight Florida accent. You are from northern Florida, so people just want to know. I'm just teasing you, but you did go to Florida State University, and it's, uh, I have a lot of connections with there. But you really came from Germany originally, and why don't you – you were a Fulbright scholar, you said, right? Yeah, so I don't know that that's a Florida accent. I think it was a bit different. No, yeah, I ended up at Florida State as a Fulbright Scholar. I went to school for two years in Germany. College wanted to go abroad, and this was the time before the internet. And I looked on a map, and I thought Tallahassee was close to the beach. Now, <laughs> it's relatively close to the beach. But either way, I ended up at Florida State, got my PhD, had a good time, and then came to MSU as a postdoc. Yeah, and we're fortunate for that, and we appreciate all the good work you've done there. Um, is there any partners or other stakeholders you wanted to mention besides? Uh, I know you've mentioned MSU and the state. And well, MEDC. Yeah, MEDC. Well, we appreciate. I mean, the Michigan congressional delegation in a bipartisan, bicameral man- manner has been wonderful. Um, we we really appreciate the support we've gotten from Republicans, from Democrats in the House, in the Senate, and also then from the uh, you know state of Michigan. And it it just goes to show when people work together and 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 you know that good things can happen for the state. And I really appreciate that when we had the ribbon cutting. Um, you know, it's just like Central Michigan. It's a it's a it's a mixed thing. But you know, our workforce is the same way. We all work together to further this cause, and we put our differences aside, and we 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 just built the thing, and now it's running. You're listening to the Michigan Opportunity, featuring candid conversations with Michigan business leaders on what makes Michigan a leading state to live, work, and play. Listen to more episodes at michiganbusiness.org forward slash podcast. What other trends and disruptors do you see that might be affected by your basic research? Do you see it leapfrogging or taking different turns? Yeah, it's interesting. So within the basic research, we're going to, with AFRIP, scientists will figure out what number of protons and neutrons stick together. There's really not a comprehensive predictive theory, you know, what what what, what numbers of protons and neutrons stick together. We figure that out. That's basic research. We'll figure out how the heavy elements on Earth were made because, you know, when hydrogen fuses to helium and things keep on fusing, you end up with iron, which is the most tightly bound um, atom, but yet we find gold and other heavy elements on Earth. So we'll figure that out. But then at the same time, we're doing that by making rare isotopes. These rare isotopes, which we use for basic nuclear physics research, have also applications in themselves. So we now have started talking to medical folks because we can make any isotope you want in research quantities. These can then be used to help humankind, be that in, medi- in, 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 in medicine or in other kinds of research. So if I had to guess, you know, in 20, 30 years, 
and yeah, I hope Michigan State effort will be known for having solved some fundamental questions in nuclear physics. But the thing that's going to take us in the future, I'm, I guess, and I'm not, I don't want to say I'm sure, but I'm guess will be more on the isotope side because we really can be an isotope maker. Now, that enables research in itself, and it's not very economical. This place is expensive to run, but once folks have figured out what particular isotope is efficacious for something, you know, then you can find more economical ways, distribute them to, to more. Once people have figured out what isotope is efficacious for some medical purpose, you can find economical ways um, to make them and distribute the supply chain over the country. So we're really going to be, I think, the research center on the application of isotopes for society, and that can mushroom and really grow then. Well, you know, it's, it's, I always tell people this, even when I was in my committees, is that uh, you just need to look at NASA, for example, and all the spinoff things that came out of that that you couldn't have predicted before and how it really Really, you know, I know it was a space race, but it was actually more beneficial for humankind, I think. All the other stuff they did that you couldn't have anticipated because we were just sort of fighting with the Russians to, you know, to get to the moon. And all the other huge benefits that to this day, and I imagine the same thing, like right now you're talking about, you know, whatever it is, but it could lead to sustainability issues, could be electric vehicles, could be wearables for medicine, you know, as you said, like you don't know where it's going to end up, communications, but uh, it's very exciting. Really. Yeah, we, we kind of need to be a little bit two-minded. We got to keep the eye on the ball, focus on our mission, but with 10% of the brain, we need to be open to these other opportunities that come along. And that's that's what makes it really interesting. So you you know every day what you need to do, but you keep an open mind of what's possible with the things you find out. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's very. I, I that's why I was excited about doing this podcast anyway, because I just think I'm always excited about basic and applied research and how they both do different things. But basic is usually really what moves the gears. Applied usually is necessity sometimes, right? And uh, so it's just sort of interesting how they work together in a way. Um, so this is your chance to go back and talk to your 17-year-old self when you're over there in uh, Germany and you're debating where to go <laughs> for your career. Um, and what would you tell yourself again? What would you tell your high school self if you were sort of like doing a mini commencement speech? What would you, what, what would you tell yourself to go back into now with what you know nowadays? Well, it's interesting. When I was 17, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I liked, <laughs> I liked the physics teacher I had, so I thought maybe I should study that. That's about and, – and so I think um, this whole path has been quite serendipitous and, and lucky, and, you know, I feel fortunate about it. So maybe I would say I should be a better planner. But on the other hand, I think um, just the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of, you know, curiosity and thinking about things, um, I think maybe that's really the message. If you do something that you like doing and you're serious about it, it'll turn out okay. I don't really know that one can plan all this out. Certainly, it didn't work that way for me and turned out okay. Yeah, there's what I'm going to paraphrase the old saying that 
people that spend all their time planning never do anything. <laughs> right? So you, you kind of got to react sometimes and you yeah. need to, like you said, you need the other part of your brain. Sometimes not the most, uh, like the serious part of your brain. Sometimes it's good to follow your impulse too once in a while. Right. Right. Yeah. And then some side, you know, I showed up in the U S with a suitcase you know, maybe that was a little crazy in retrospect. I think <laughs> that was crazy, but it's, I don't think that it was. Well, you're still going to Florida, so the beaches yeah, weren't yeah. that far. Well, not that um, far, yeah. yeah. But the uh, – and plus, one thing we I think we did forget to mention, that you've got 630 employees, right? Or it's a yeah, pretty yeah. big you, – you've got a lot of people working there, too. It's It's got to be – I think even in your press release, it's, you're almost like a separate college, right? Or uni- like within the university? Yeah, or? within the since, since we don't give degrees, we don't call ourselves a college. We're a major administrative unit. It's akin to a college. We have forty faculty, and our students get degrees in natural science and in engineering. But they do work in your lab as part of their other degrees yeah. in other schools. Yeah, right? yeah, they work here. And, and then you know, one other thing that maybe not known, we educate um, a quarter. So 10% of the nuclear science PhDs in the U.S. come from MSU. And we're also the top-ranked graduate program. We surpassed MIT some years ago. Um, but we also educate about uh, 25 to 30% of the nation's nuclear science PhDs. They come to MSU for, from different schools to take data and then go home, uh, analyze them, and, and write papers and make discoveries and get degrees. It's pretty exciting. I didn't know all that either, and I did go to school there, so I should have known more. Well, um, uh, you know, we <laughs> I had other things in my mind. I was playing rugby too. So yeah, I, I read that about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, don't know how I. I'm pretty serendipitous too. I don't know how I got here. Um, the last question we usually ask, and because you're sort of a transplant, but not really. You've been here a long time now. But what's your favorite thing of doing in Michigan? Either a festival or a place to go. Well, I like the I, I like the outdoors, and I like the um, I like the summer. I like the winter when it snows. I'm not such a big fan of I don't know January, February. That's, <laughs> that's a good time to go to Florida. No, but Michigan is a good place. I mean, we have a lot of water. We have beautiful resources and incredible people. Yeah, no, it is. I love the state too. Well, anyway, I, I uh, once again want to thank. Uh, the director of the FRIB, Thomas Glassmacher. And I want to also thank you for taking time. I know you got a really busy schedule and we appreciate this at the state and everything you're doing for the university as well as for Michigan. So thanks again for coming on the show today, Thomas. Well, thank you, Ed. And I do appreciate what MEDC does for Michigan too. So we all got to work together, elevate the state. Thank you. Join us next week where our guest will be Awanati Kobina. He's the CEO of Bedrock Group And he's also the chair of the MEDC Executive Committee. The Michigan Opportunity is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org forward slash radio to put your plans in motion.